So this morning, we arrive at the last message of our four-part <clears throat> series through the book of Haggai. We've been calling the Blueprint for Revival. And just to recap what we've talked about so far, um, this idea of the blueprint for revival, so using an architectural metaphor, we're talking about building something. And a revival is a mass movement for good that is inspired by the Holy Spirit and through the truth of God's Word. And you can actually locate such movements or similar movements throughout history. And I think what we see in Haggai is something like that. It's something like a revival where people start moving the direction that God is calling them to go. It's not just one person or one person over there or another person over there. It becomes a mass movement where many, many people are working together, responding to God, responding to God's Spirit, and such that society is actually changed. That, that's what's amazing. Um, in America, there's, um, we have a lot of churches. We have a lot of self-professed Christians. We even have a lot of big churches. Um, but what's interesting is you can get a lot of Christians in one area, but society doesn't change. You can have like absolutely massive churches of 25,000 people, and you go, oh my gosh, but then nothing is changing. That, that's what's weird. If you're in the bubble, it feels like, oh my gosh, this is a revival. But if you get outside the bubble, it's not making any difference at all. Just society is just going the way that it's going, the world's going the way that it's going. But when a revival happens, society changes. That's why I, I want to kind of blow the limits off of what we normally put God into. We try to put God in a box, say, oh, well, revival will just be as if, you know, our, our little church does this and that, and, you know, more people. Are, that's that's not a revival. Like, even if that might, that might be good, but that's not a revival. Um, I point to, because I was actually over there, I interned at a church in Cardiff, Wales years ago, and so I did these tours of the, the Welsh revival and all that, and what I was astounded by is how this movement, which many mark as sort of the genesis of the worldwide global Pentecostal movement, if you look at what happened there, you see just handfuls of people, not many people, uh, in many cases not clergy, not ordained, not, not people that anyone would look to and say, oh yeah, you're going to be a leader. It was just men and women who, who came to this place where they're like, I want, I want God, and if I can't have God, I don't want anything else. I just, I want God. I'm, I'm tired of living for everything else, and I'm just not taking anything else as a substitute. And they begin meeting, and they begin meeting for prayer, and then all of a sudden this, this starts spilling out, and it does it to the extent that the world around them is changed. And you can actually read how um, prisons were being emptied. Prisons were being emptied, not because of any laws that got passed, but because people stopped doing things that got put them there. Drunkenness, distilleries were closing down, not because anyone preached a message on being a teetotaler and that you know, good people shouldn't do that. No, they found something that was better than that. And if you know the history of Wales, it was just a blue-collar mining region. That's all it was. And these men are going into the mines and working in the coal mines and getting black lung. And just they were living these kind of miserable lives. And they would come home and they would just drink their paychecks away because their lives are so bad. And then that was bad for, for the wives and the children. It was just a mess. And when this revival happened, which started in the church, it actually changed society. And I, I just want to encourage you that that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a plan to grow our church. Like, that's little. 
I'm talking about a worldwide movement for good that really changes society. And again, I'm, I'm not one of these people that's, you, you know, I'm uh, a dreamer where I think, oh, and, that, and that'll make all the problems in the world fine and people will never revert back to anything. No, I'm sure they will. But my goodness, aren't you just at a place in your life where I want to see it on my watch. I want to see the world change while I'm here. I want to see it with my eyes. Not, you know, I want to make a better world for my children and grandchildren, but you know what? I want to do what I got to do to see it now with my eyes. And that's what a revival is. So I just want to encourage you when we're talking about this blueprint for revival, it is something so much bigger than us. It's bigger than our church. It's, it's bigger even than just Christians tend to conceive of it in their own subcultures. So, there's four ways that we seem to be able to work towards revival. Still a sovereign act of God, but there's things we can do. The first thing we saw is that the Lord has to become the foundation for your life. He has to become number one. Um, for some people, obviously, if you're, if you're not a Christian, then the Lord is not, Jesus is not number one to you. Um, but here's the funny thing. Many Christians, because they're Christians, assume that Jesus is number one. But I would say that is often not the case. One of the things that happens in revival, again, is God's people actually become aware of their own sin. Not just the sins of their neighbor, not just the sins of you know, the big bad world or whoever it is. And I think that's one of the things that stunts the growths of Christians is they look out at the world and the perceived evil out there, whether real or, or imagined. They see that and they go, well, I'm not like that. So I don't need to change. I must have, Jesus must be the foundation of my life because I'm not like these people. But God doesn't compare you to anybody else. He wants you to put Him first above everything else in your life. Not just, oh, I'm, I'm a notch above somebody else's life. He wants to be number one in your life. He wants the Christian life to be one of John the Baptist who when his disciples felt threatened by Jesus because all his followers were leaving him and going to Jesus, and they said, John, we, you know, we love you. They're just being friends, right? All his followers are leaving. His employees are leaving. And they're like, John, we, we want to help you. And what is John's reply? I must decrease and he must increase. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. So revival begins with already professing Christians, acknowledging, you know what? I go to church. I read the Bible. been doing it for a long time. I do some good things. And I confess, Jesus is not number one. The truth is, He's just not. My, my relationship to my wife or my children or my job or my financial situation or my physical health or whatever, you name it, Truth be told, if I'm honest, if I can make a confession, that's what's number one. That's my life. That's what I wake up thinking about every morning. That's what I'm stressing out about. That's where my anxiety is. All the decisions I make about where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do are not about Jesus and His eternal gospel. It's about something I got going in my life that I'm going to lose one day no matter how hard I try. And you wake up one day and you go, you know what? The Lord is not number one. And I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I think some Christians go there. They've got a lot of theological fog in their minds. So they don't know how to hear that without also hearing, I'm saying, oh, you're not a Christian. No, I'm saying Christianity is a journey. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a journey. I'm saying you begin somewhere 
and, and there's a beginning, but then there's a middle, and that's most of your life, and then there's an end. That's what I think is so powerful about the, the classic work, 17th century work, called Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. Because what John Bunyan does there is he basically tells the story of the Christian life as this great epic, as this great journey, and the character Christian leaves the city of destruction. That's where he is. And he urges his wife and kids to come with him, but they said, no, we don't want to. And he says, oh, I love you. Please come with me. And they're like, no. He's like, well, I gotta go. I've been called to leave the city of destruction. And that's not the end of the story. For many people in America, it's, you know, raise your hand. Do you want to leave the city of destruction today? And they're like, yes, I want to leave the city of destruction. Great, you're over. Just hang on. Just camp out, make a little tent right outside the city of destruction and live there for the next 80 years. That's not the Christian life. For John Bunyan, what else is a part of the Christian life is the pit of despair. You're going to have obstinate, impliable, these, these friends that come alongside of you. God will send along an evangelist. You're about to, there's Vanity Fair. You know the magazine? That's where they get that name from. Vanity Fair. It's, it's sort of like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. Which is not just like Vegas. It's kind of like America, I think, in many ways. Vanity Fair. You can live your life so easily, your entire life, in Vanity Fair. Just living for pleasure, living for the next thing. But a revival is evangelist comes along and tells you not just to leave the city of destruction, because you did that a long time ago, but you've been camping out in Vanity Fair for 40 years. And you are being called to get up, and you are be calling, you're, you're supposed to go to the celestial city, and you will cross the Jordan one day, and we need to keep going. So revival is getting that foundation right again and acknowledging we've put other things in the place of Jesus. Secondly, we saw that having laid the foundation, the Holy Spirit gives us the courage to build. It takes courage to build a life of faith. This is not for the weak. People sometimes suggest that about faith. No way. As a matter of fact, growing up as a pastor's kid, I knew that a life of faith was not weak. I didn't want to do it because I knew it would be hard. I knew it would cost me everything. I mean, I don't know where people get the idea. Well, yes, I do. But many people have the idea if you just follow Jesus, everything's going to be easy. You won't have pain. You won't have trouble. You won't have difficulty. You won't have betrayal. You won't get divorced. Your kids won't abandon you. You won't get cancer. You won't lose your job. I don't know where people get that idea because when I'm reading the Bible, I'm seeing all these people that follow Jesus, the apostles, 11 out of 12, die martyrs' deaths. What part of that don't we get in America? 11 out of 12. And the 12th, by the way, still did not escape the martyr's death, but not because of a lack of trying. History tells us he was actually boiled in oil and he was exiled to Patmos, which is where he writes the book of Revelation, by the way, in exile. Jesus died on a cross. <laughs> like, if you want to know how to do life right, you look at Jesus, but then if you're looking at that, wait, wait a minute. So Jesus lived the perfect life. He did everything you're supposed to do. And look what happened. But for many of us, again, we're looking at that and we're like, oh, well, that must be some other way to live or that's an option. Or just Jesus did that. No, the Gospels say over and over and over, if we would have Jesus, we must pick up our cross also. So it takes real courage to be a man or woman of faith. It takes real courage because it is hard. And I will never lie and tell anyone it's easy because it's not. 
What I can tell you is it's good. We've gotten the idea that only easy is good. And I think that's a natural one for children, right? Like they, they complain, you know, about cleaning their room. You know, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard to clean. You know, where do they get this idea that, that good is easy? I think the best good in life is very hard work. Comes with a lot of sweat, a lot of toil, and maybe even blood. Good things are often very hard, so we need courage to build. We're going to have enemies. We're going to have literally have people who want to work against us working for good. They're going to want to try to stop us. And if that weren't enough, you're going to have your own enemies within. You're going to wrestle with discouragement. You're going to be like, I've been building and building and building and building, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Like the foundation is still practically naked. I've got like a couple of bricks and I've been standing here, you know, with a sword fighting off enemies. I got the shovel in the other and I'm like going back and forth and I'm losing and just feels like I'm not. You're going to wrestle with discouragement. But the Holy Spirit can give us courage to keep on going even when we don't see the results that we want. Number three, we saw that God cares more about us as the builders than he does about the building itself. It's easy to think, all right, well, I'll do something for the Lord. And yes, the Lord calls us to do things in the world, make things, create things, tear down bad things. He calls us to do that. But he does not want us to get lost along the way. He actually cares about who you are as a builder. And so he wants to renovate our hearts from the inside out. He wants us not only to do good things, he wants us to be good people by his definition. And so lastly, this morning we arrive at the message I'm entitling, Building for Eternity. Building for Eternity. And so with that, we're going to look at Haggai 2, 20-23. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. This is God's Word. And again, the Word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we just pray for your blessing over the hearing of your word, over the teaching of your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, Lord, so that these are not simply ideas that go into our minds and go no further, but that they would not only go into our minds, that we would understand them, interact with them, wrestle with them, but we pray that whatever is from you would make its way down from our minds into our hearts, and that our lives would be changed, and that we would begin building for eternity, that we would not be like so many who cannot see anything but what is right in front of their eyes. Help us to see past that which is temporary and transitory, doomed to pass away, and help us to see that which lasts forever. Help us to live lives that can never be taken away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. So as often is the case, there's far too much going on here in Scripture for a single teaching to possibly cover. It was, it's just four little verses. It's like the smallest of, his, of Haggai's oracles. And there's actually a ton of stuff going on, a lot of which we just don't have the time to get into. So what I've chosen to do is focus on sort of the, the main point of the passage and direct it towards our theme of the blueprint for revival. And it's this idea of building for eternity. So we're time and space beings. We have, I believe, the, the, the historic Orthodox Christian teaching has always been that, yes, you have a body and God made a body, but you also have a soul. There's an immaterial part of you that is part of your body. You are both body and soul. It's not one or the other. It's not, let's save souls, but we don't care about bodies or we don't care about bodies. We'll just say it's, it's both. You are a body and soul unity. And that means if we're only working for things that we can see, we're really not being fully human because we are more than just temporal, physical creatures. We are eternal beings. And so we need to have aims that are beyond the merely physical and temporal, although not less than that. It's going to include that, but it's going to be more than that. We need to aim at eternal things. So how does this text point to eternity? Well, there's a tension in the Hebrew Bible, a tension, there's lots, Um, but there's a tension here, namely that we have this, again, this, this big word, eschatological language. Remember what I told you that means. Eschaton, last things. Logos, logi, means study of. So the study of last things. And we talked about how both Judaism and Christianity, or excuse me, the ancient Israelite religion and Christianity, they're eschatological, meaning that they're very concerned about what's going on in the present, but they're always pointing to someday down the road in which God himself will intervene and bring about all the promises that he's given. And the tension is that God's made promises and God's faithful and yet they're not true right now. And so there's there's this tension and you actually have that happening right here in this passage. You have eschatological language, this language about heaven and earth being shaken, all all the thrones, notice this, all the thrones of the earth, all the thrones of the Gentiles, the chariots and those who ride them and the horses shall come down. This is Exodus language. The heaven and earth, ha-shamayim, ha-aretz, it's the heavens and the earth of Genesis. This is cosmic in scope. This isn't like Israel's going to, you know, move their territory across the river and get a little more land. This is worldwide, universal in scope. So this is huge. But then it's very temporal in the sense that somehow this figure of Zerubbabel has something to do with it. So you got this huge worldwide cosmic thing in which what God has been promising for the history of the world is going to come true. And then here's this figure, Zerubbabel. And then you got the fact that he's not even a king. He's just a governor. Persia's still in charge. Their temple is, is in ruins. It's, they're working on it, but it's not there. So you, you got this tension of, man, I see things in ruins. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet God's going to do far above and beyond anything we could ever ask or think. And He's going to be true to His Word. Even though it doesn't look like it right now. So you feel that tension. And I don't just think that's a tension for Haggai and Haggai's audience, I think it's attention for us. 
There's all these things about God the Bible says are true. All these things God wants to do in your life, in our lives, in our society, in the world. And yet they're not true yet. We're not seeing it. Maybe there's, there's some inroads into good that we're seeing and we can go, oh, God's moving there. He's, this is getting better. But then we look over here, oh, that's getting worse. That, that, that's getting worse over there. And so the believer, the one who truly believes and truly has faith, is someone who is struggling over these matters, maintaining faith while not ignoring the tensions because they are there. So the big question for interpreters, as it was in Haggai's day, is given the cosmic scope of what's being suggested here, what's being promised, and this, and, and this is surrounding this figure of Zerubbabel, so is it for their time? Is it going to happen right then? Is that what Haggai is saying? Is, hey, Zerubbabel, this guy right now, it's going to happen within his lifetime, which is you know, not that long, this lifetime. Or is it something somehow involving Zerubbabel, but beyond him? That's the main question. Of course, many people in his day would have probably understood it as, as referring to that. Oh, it's going to be Zerubbabel, hopefully. I mean, things are going the way we, we would want to. We went from Babylon being our master to Persia, and Persia's a lot better than Babylon. Babylon exiled us, but Persia sent us back. Persia's even allowed, giving us the money to rebuild our temple. Okay, well, things are going in the right direction. But things are still not where they should be. And what is very fascinating, if you, if you don't know the history of the Old Testament, what happens to Zerubbabel? We don't know. Zerubbabel literally disappears from the pages of history. He disappears from the Bible. Even in extra-biblical literature, you just kind of, we don't know what happened to him. It's not like, oh, you can say, oh, Zerubbabel and this happened and, and we know that this isn't true or we know that it, he disappears. Mysteriously, he's just gone. So quite early on, Israel had to recognize that, look, God is true to his promises. He said all this. Zerubbabel has something to do with it, but he's not the fulfiller of it. We were kind of looking to him to, to kind of bring it all in and bring it about, but it wasn't him. And so, looking at this text, the main thing we need to understand is that these great promises were eschatological. They were not just for Haggai's day. They, for, they were for yet a future time. And I would say that this idea of this future time in which God is going to do something is also what eternity is about. Eternity is the sphere of God if we can put it that way. And again, putting limiting sounding terms, but when we use the word infinite, what does the word infinite mean by definition? Not finite. That, that's what it means. I mean, you, you cannot comprehend it. That's all we're really saying with the word infinite is that God exists and yet he does not exist in the same way we do where we have a beginning and an end and we're bound by time and space and change and all these things. Those things don't apply to God. Time itself is a created thing. We know this. Time is measured simply, it's units of motion, right? We measure a day, it, the earth is turning, motion. Aristotle defined time as simply a measurement of change according to a before and an after. That's simply what time is, it's, it's moving. But God is outside this created time-moving process. And so eternity is aiming at something by definition that is real but cannot change. It cannot be lost. 
It cannot be delayed, nor can it be pushed ahead. It is simply what is in the mind and heart of God to be. So what we have here is a picture of the future. It's a picture of eschatology. So how does Zerubbabel figure, figure into this? What we have in Zerubbabel is a representative figure whom God chooses to restore the Davidic line. He's a representative figure. Now, I've read some modern anti-biblical people, uh, scholars, kind of attacking the Bible. Oh, well, you, you can't do that. That's just a cheap way out of a false prophecy. He says this about Zerubbabel, then it didn't happen. See, the Bible is wrong. And if I respond and say, well, you don't understand. Zerubbabel is a representative figure. And they, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's, that's just, you know, pressing the button, got deus ex maxima, God out of the machine. That's what you're doing. No, if you understand not only ancient Israel, but ancient cultures, they all had a very strong corporate identity. And the idea of one who can represent a person, an individual, who can actually represent all the people. The priests would do this in the temple system. David did this for Israel when he went out to fight Goliath. He wasn't just fighting for himself. He was representing all Israel. Goliath was not just fighting for himself. He was representing the Philistines. This was true with the Greeks. This was true with the Romans. They would have a champion, and the champion would step forward, and he would represent the entire people. So this idea of representative figure, if that sounds like a cop-out, it only sounds like that to someone who doesn't understand both the Bible and pretty much the history of most nations. They all understood with a strong corporate identity that an individual who is not us yet can represent us. And so Zerubbabel is a representative figure. And he's not the one in whom all of these things will come true. And yet he has something to do with it. But what? Well, what we see in Zerubbabel is God, first of all, restoring the Davidic line which has been broken and cursed. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And thus, God's promise to bring blessing to the world through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of David is restored and yet awaits future fulfillment. So while there's more that we could say, obviously it appears quite clear that Haggai refers to a future time, but by means of God's election of Zerubbabel. So building for eternity from this text, I want to give you three points that we can live by. Number one, the future belongs to the Lord, so trust Him with it. The future belongs to the Lord. It is His dwelling place. You don't dwell in the future, can you? I mean, you can sit here in the present and dream. You can imagine. But guess where you're doing that? It's the present. You're not in the future. You're in the present. You are always in the present. God is able, from a human perspective, to occupy past, present, and future. Again, the traditional rendering of the divine name when I was growing up was, was I am, taking the present tense. Scholars have also pointed out it may very well be the imperfect form of the verb, which would be I will be who I will be. And people go, well, which one is correct? I think all of those are correct. He is the one who is in the past, who is in the present, who will always be in the future. And that's acknowledged elsewhere in Scripture. I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. The unchanging one. So the future belongs to the Lord. It is His. It's not yours. 
We work in the present. We're called to do things. We're called to work hard at relationships. We're called to work hard in the church. We're called to work hard in the world. But the future is not for us. We can only do these things in the present. The future belongs to the Lord. So trust Him with it. You can never know what the future holds. But what we are being told today is you can know the one who holds the future. You can know the one who holds the future. You know, the idea of of a lot of the sorceries and mediums that God outlawed in the Old Testament, it was this idea where even Saul himself would go seek after a medium, and it was this idea of, I would rather do whatever I've got to do, even if it's violate God's laws, I'll do whatever I've got to do to somehow grab a hold of the future rather than trust God. To go by any means necessary to figure out what is going to happen instead of trusting God. But the truth is, no matter what you do, you can never know what the future holds, but you can know who holds the future. Notice through this whole section, and this just leaped out to me, that this section is all about what God will do in the future. It has nothing to do with you or I. In the past, in Haggai, we saw that we're called to do things in the present. We're called to take responsibility. We're called to work hard. We're called to build. We're called to build God's temple, work for His kingdom, do good in the world. We're called to do that. But one of the things that leaps out to you is the number of I wills in this section. There's not one you will. You need to do this. This is all about God. Listen to this. And I don't know if it'll show up on there, but in bold, I put all the I's. This is God speaking. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride him. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is all about the Lord of the future. This is about the future belongs to Him. And one of the interesting things in, in Hebrew is it'll use a past tense for a future act. They call it a divine past tense. And in the prophetic literature, this is prominent. And what it means is only God is able to speak about the future as though it's already passed. So much so it uses past tense verbs for future events. How do you like that? Talk about certainty. You want certainty? You want certainty of the future? You're not going to have it outside of the Lord. The future is so certain with the Lord, He can declare the end from the beginning, the Bible says. That is how certain the future is. So for us, we need to know that the future belongs to the Lord. That is not your place. Trying to dwell there, How many hours or days or weeks or months have we wasted trying to dwell in the future? How is this going to get paid? How is this going to happen? Well, this could go this way and this could go that way and I don't know. And all that, we're trying to occupy space we cannot occupy. And meanwhile, we're not doing many times what we're supposed to be doing in the present. But we want to know the future. So what do we do? The Bible says you trust the Lord. I bring whatever I've got Whatever I'm worried about, whatever I desire to do, maybe it's good I want to do and I'm anxious to know if it'll get done. Maybe there's bad things happening to me and my family and I'm like, oh, is this going to get worse? I'm scared. 
This could get where I've seen it. I've seen it go really bad, and I'm scared. I'm very scared. I don't want to hear the doctor say that. I am scared. We give that to the Lord. We trust Him. And we never stop because He is the Lord of the future. Secondly, invest your life in eternal things. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament quotes this very passage in Haggai. One of the most important things you can do in studying the Bible is to observe how the Bible speaks of itself. The Bible is what they call an intercanonical book. It's, its main principle of interpretation is not some alien thing that people bring to it from the outside. It is what the Bible says about itself. Did you know that the Bible cross-references itself 64,000 times? The Bible references itself 64,000 times. The Bible is its own primary principle of interpretation. So when the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai, our passage this morning, we can go there for understanding because that's how the Bible works. What the author is saying in Hebrews 12.25-29 is that this idea of the shaking of heaven and earth is like the idea of separating the wheat from the chaff. That's what it is. When God says He's going to shake heaven and earth. He's shaking it like wheat from the chaff. Or maybe for some of us, you haven't separated wheat from chaff lately. But maybe, do any of you go buy your own Christmas tree? Do you ever go to a Christmas tree farm and, and cut it down and bring it over? And one of the things you usually can pay a little extra to do, and if you want less of a mess, it's a good thing to do, is they shake the tree for you, put it in a little vibrating machine, and they'll shake it. And what happens? All the dead stuff comes out. And so when you take your tree home, you don't have all the, the dead leaves all over the place, all the little pines everywhere. That's what God is talking about. He's going to shake heaven and earth. All the dead works, all the dead things you've been living for, all these things you've been worrying about and occupying yourself with that God was not desiring for you, they're just going to fall to the ground dead. He's going to shake it. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. I'll have it behind me. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this. Now this yet once more indicates, listen, the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, temporary, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You see that? So we have an interpretation of Haggai in the book of Hebrews. And he's saying, let me explain what that shaking is about because you could read a lot into that. You're not quite, well, it could be this, could be this. He says it's the idea of shaking that which is and that which we live our lives for and anything that is not eternal. This is why I'm telling you to build for eternity. Anything, when your life is shaken, that is not eternal, it's going to be lost. 
everything you do in your life is going to be shaken at some point or another. Even now. We're going to have seasons when our lives are shaken just like that. Lord willing, when we're shaken, and we all will be, and there's none of us in this room who when we're shaken won't have some dead leaves fall. Every single one of us. But it's scary when you're being shaken and suddenly everything seems to be. Because what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us that God doesn't love you. still loves you. But when your life is shaken and you're losing everything, you can start to know what your life was built on in the first place. What was I living for that was eternal? Or did I just build my life on things that could never last anyway? That ultimately weren't eternal. For some of us, I know this is happening right now. Your life is being shaken. And this isn't because God doesn't love you. It's because He does. And He wants to purify your life. He wants the dead works, the dead things in your life to fall away. And in its place, He doesn't want you to go pick up the dead things and glue them back on. Which is what we like to do. I've done it. You know, it's like, oh, you, didn't, you must have not have meant that to fall off, Lord. Let me spend 10 years trying to glue that back on. We do that. If the Lord is shaking us and these things are falling to the ground, it's because they're meant to. And He wants to replace temporal things with eternal things. Some of us, our lives could be in the process of being shaken to its core. Again, I, you know, not trying to get pity or anything. I know some people have had worse lives, whatever, but, you know, I was 23 when my dad died. Not maybe the youngest. Some of you may have had it younger, but then I know people twice my age who still have their dad around. So, lost, lost in men. And, and just going through that process of losing something so dear, it, it really did challenge me to think about what am I living for? And I think, you know, losing a parent, particularly maybe when you're close to them, I wasn't close to my dad in my teenage years, but became very close later. You know, if you grew up around your parents, I mean, your, your parents are sort of the, the basis for your identity, right? I mean, that's, that's where it comes from, ultimately from your parents, so much so that even children who are adopted, never met their birth parents on the other side of the world, go searching for them for the rest of their lives. Why would they do that? It's so hardwired into us to know who we are that people will make those kinds of journeys. And then as a child is learning, they're put, you know, just you're, the basics, just moving your hands and your fingers. And, and reality is, is not this abstract philosophical thing. What is reality? Like in a college class somewhere, reality is mom and dad. It's the couch. It's this house on this block in this place with the, the little apple tree out, out there on the, on the corner. This is reality. And when those things start going away, you realize the very foundations of your life are going away. And I think we have decisions to make in that moment. What am I going to build my life on? Is it wise? I'm not saying it was wrong to love my dad. Of course it wasn't. It was good to do so. But he was temporary. It wasn't going to last forever. Do I replace him with a, with a wife? With a kid? Is, that, is that what I'm doing when I lose one? I, I rep- all I'm doing is delaying that again. In those moments when we're shaken to our core, and I think that's an example, losing somebody you love, however it happens, is a moment when you're shaken to your core, and that's the moment when Christ wants to say to you, 
I'm the one who gave you that in the first place. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. James 1.17. Every good thing in the world. And what we tend to do is worship the gift. God gives you something and, and it's so good, you're just, yes, I'm going to make a God out of it. It's going to be everything. I'm going to build my life on it. Then it goes away. And you have a choice. You can either try to replace that or you can see past it and go, you know what? This person or this thing or this season of my life, whatever it was, it was a passing shadow of who God is. This was God the Creator trying to show me in and through the things that were made who He is. And He was always desiring me to look up. But sometimes we don't look up until things are gone. So if we're shaken to our core this morning, it's not because God doesn't love you, it's because He wants you to look up. He wants you to build your life on what is eternal. And that means investing your life. You, you can get grasped by this intellectually and maybe even emotionally, but it requires action. Embodied action in the world. How do you actually invest in eternity? Are you actually doing that? There are things that are very important to us right now that we spend a lot of time, money, and energy on but they're not going to last and remember things don't have to be bad in and of themselves to simply be not God's best for us are we living for eternity are we using all of these things that we use elsewhere for other people are we investing it in eternity in that which we cannot lose there's a great quote I know some of you know it from the late martyr and missionary Jim Elliot, who said he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Does that make sense? I think a lot of people say, well, well you're foolish for living a life of faith. You're foolish for living eternity. You need to live for what you can see. You need to live for your car and your house and, and this and that, and, you know, just these tangible temporal things. But think about what Eliot said, which is based on biblical truth. It's the idea that, look, all God is asking you to do is give up that which you're going to lose anyway. It's not, a, it's not a matter of if, it's when. So he's asking you to give up that which you're going to lose anyway so that you might gain that which you can never lose. Investing in eternity, in eternal things, is the wisest investment you could ever make because it can never be taken away. This is the advice Jesus gave. He said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt nor do thieves break in and steal. That is the investment that makes the most sense. And I pray that we will do that. And lastly, God wants to reverse the curse in your life starting today. God wants to reverse the curse in your life starting today. Well, what curse is that and what do you mean? Well, first of all, there's the curse of sin. It's, like I've said, this is one of the big storylines of the Bible. What, what went wrong? God didn't make the world this way. You turn on the news, you think God made the world that way? Well, Genesis says no. It's understandable why you could think that. If you don't have a Bible, what other choice do you have but to believe this is the way God made it? God's not good. Or He's not all-powerful. Or He's not all-knowing. Or something. I've got to reduce God to some finite image to make sense of what I see in the world on TV or my neighborhood or whatever it is. But the Bible says, no, I understand how you could think that, but that's not how God made the world. 
What happened was sin came into the world and it corrupted that which was good. And it has been doing that both individually and systemically since that time. So the first thing that God is doing is He is reversing the curse of sin itself. And secondly, and I get this particularly from our passage in Haggai this morning, the second is the particular curse of sin at work in your family line. The particular curse of sin at work in your family line. Now, where am I getting this? Let me show you something. Zerubbabel should not have been allowed to be in the Davidic line as God's seal. He shouldn't have been allowed. There was a curse on his family line. If we look back at Jeremiah 22-24, what we find out is Zerubbabel had a grandfather. That grandfather's name was Jeconiah, also Kaniah, also Jehoiakim. He's got different names. In Jeremiah 22, he was so wicked before the Lord that even though he was a descendant of David and God promised to David he would always have someone sitting on his throne, he said to Jeconiah this, As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet, same word as in our text in Haggai this morning, Though he were the signet on my right hand, yet I would cast you off. I would pluck you off. There was a curse on the family line because of his Zerubbabel's grandfather's godlessness. And yet here, in this passage, we see a reversal of that curse. Just as Israel itself was cursed and cast into exile, so God is reversing it and saying, I'm bringing you back. And not only does he speak to the nation, he speaks to this family line. He speaks to Zerubbabel and he says, your family line has been cursed, but I'm bringing you back. I am redeeming you from the sin of your grandfather. And while sin is is theological, it's directly related to God regardless of history and what people are doing in your family and the culture and everything else. It's directly to God, yes. But it includes all of this. Why people do certain sins at certain times in certain ways. Yes, there's the big capital S sin that comes from the fall, Adam and Eve, and not listening to God, not wanting God to be God. Yes. But why do certain people do certain sins at certain times? That has a lot to do with your family system. The things you saw growing up. The things that were shown to you or not shown to you. There was love shown to some of you and there wasn't love shown to some of you. There was hatred. There was violence. There was this and this. All kinds of things going on. And I think the Gospel not only deals with the first kind of sin, capital S, directly before God, regardless of what anyone else does for eternity, and yet I also believe, just like in our text this morning, God wants to break the curse of sin in our family lines. Some people have family members that were never there for them. Some have family members that were always abusive. This is how women have always been treated. This is how you know, the men have always been treated. This is how children have always been treated in our family. Alcoholism. Everyone was an alcoholic in my family tree. The Gospel comes in and starts reversing that curse. I told you one of my projects for a family systems 
class in seminary was to do a four-generation genogram of our families, and that's a very, very detailed family tree that includes all your dysfunction and sin. They didn't necessarily use the word sin, but all the dysfunction. And there's key codes for things like alcoholism, drug use, early death, abortion, cigarette use, abuse, estrangement, all of that, like literally, and it's color-coded, so you're looking at it. And I'm looking at our family tree, and you, and you just, and it was a mess. Just a mess. Stuff everywhere. Oh my God, just this brokenness everywhere. But as you followed some of these lines, you'd see that sin and that brokenness slowly being broken away. And there, there'd be this point where all of a sudden new things are happening. And if you actually probed in and found out, in, in our cases, what happened? The answer is Jesus happened. You can literally look at points where people who were slaves to alcohol, slaves, addicted, ruining their lives, and they came to Jesus, and they changed, and their children changed, and their grandchildren changed, so much so that the family tree here looks nothing like the family tree there. Jesus can reverse the curse that's even been at work in our families. Just as God is reversing the curse in Zerubbabel's family. Just because Jeconiah did this, Zerubbabel, does not mean you are cursed anymore. I am bringing you back and I am redeeming you. So sin and its effects, whether it's sin we've done or sin done to us or both, by itself brings a curse. But in and through Zerubbabel's descendant, God is breaking the curse of sin. But who is Zerubbabel's descendant? So we know from this text right here and the fact that these eschatological promises didn't happen in Zerubbabel's day. And that as a matter of fact, he mysteriously disappears from history. We know that it isn't him. So who is it? to whom the God who cannot lie or change and always keeps His promises, who is this man? The New Testament answers that question. And in a place many don't know to look. It occurs in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. In the genealogy of Jesus' birth, where many people skip over when they get there, like, okay, it's a genealogy. Next page. Chapter 2. Let me show you something. Matthew verse, chapter 1, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jeconiah, the grandfather who sinned against the Lord, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the follower of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Zerubbabel is in the family line of Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel. That's why Matthew puts that there. This isn't like, oh, this is a neat little story, move on to the good stuff. For Matthew, who is writing his gospel for the Jewish community, your genealogy, who you come from, where you come through, the purity of it, the line of it, the history of it, the documentation of it is absolutely vital. And the New Testament writers, the apostles, the first Christians, 
said that Jesus is the descendant of Zerubbabel. That Jesus is the one in whom God is bringing his promises to fruition. And just as Haggai uses language reminiscent of the Exodus, notice there's Exodus language there. The horse and its rider and the chariot being overturned. This is signaling that so too God is doing a new Exodus. Leaving people out of slavery to the Egypt of sin and death. And may I add, even the fear of the future. That that is what the Gospel is doing. The good news about what God has done, is doing, and will do. He's reversing the curse of sin at work in our world, in our lives, in our family trees. And He is enabling us to let go of our fear of the future because we know the One in whom the future is held together. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning and we thank You so much that You have never given up on the human race. No matter what twists and turns life takes, no matter what twists and turns it's taken in our lives, we can know that You are at work in our lives for good. And that any shaking we're going through right now or is soon to come, we can know is not because You don't love us, but because You do. And You know that we are made for eternity. And so You want us to voluntarily, freely live lives of eternal significance. And so I just pray right now, just whatever is holding us back, whatever is holding each one of us in this room individually back from trusting You fully with the future, letting go of fear and doubt, whatever is holding us back from actually using what we have in life presently for Your kingdom which can never be lost. Lord, if there's sin at work in our families and, and it is a curse. We pray You'd reverse it. Lord, if we've, we've believed the lie that because there's a curse in our family line, we have to duplicate it. We have to copy it. We're a slave to that. You say, no, we're not. We are not slaves. We are free. We are children of the King. And as such, we are called to live freely. So I just pray You'd set us free from anything that's holding us back from experiencing Your love and Your goodness. And I do pray that we would live to see You do a revival in our day. We live to see You bring many people to a saving knowledge of God and Jesus. We pray we would live to see many people set free from the snares of this world, wickedness, the depravity, the things that ruin lives, destroy families, cut life short, rob people of their personhood. We just pray You would even work in our day and age to make these things right. And we pray that we would live faithfully as witnesses to You until You come again for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.